Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Jordan. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. The first Monday in October is the official start of each United States Supreme Court term. This year, the 2022-23 Supreme Court term and first oral arguments will begin on Monday, October the 3rd. This will be the first court term in which the first Black female Supreme Court Justice, Justice Katanji Brown Jackson, will be a member of the court. However, despite Justice Brown Jackson's joining the court, the court continues to have a conservative six justice majority. In a recent past episode, we discussed some of the significant cases decided by the court last term. And if you missed that show, you can find it all on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. On this show, we're gonna continue our discussion of the court and preview some of the major cases that will be decided by the court this term. Joining us for this discussion is one of our frequent guests, our colleague and fellow NCCU law professor, Don Corbett. Professor Corbett teaches, among other courses, constitutional law. Professor Corbett, as always, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. I appreciate it. So before we talk about the cases, we want to spend a little bit of time talking about how cases make their way to the Supreme Court. So oftentimes you'll hear people say if they're involved in litigation, uh, I'm going to take this case all the way to the Supreme Court. But it's a very small percentage of the cases in which people want the court to hear their case, that the court actually accepts. And so we thought it would be helpful to kind of just talk about how cases make their way to the court to be decided by the justices. So um, Don, we'll, we'll start with you. Can you share kind of a general breakdown of how it is that the court decides uh, cases to hear in any given term? Sure, sure, I can give it a shot. So, so there's basically external rules that are dictated by the Constitution, and then the court itself has some internal rules, and both of those things combine to help them decide which cases to take and which ones to reject. And you're 100% right. When I was practicing, uh, I can't tell you how many times, no matter what it was about, it could have been about jaywalking, it could have been about a, could have been about a border dispute between families, they wanted to go all the way to the Supreme Court with it. And then you have to kind of tell them, well, it doesn't quite work that way. It's not quite that easy. So uh, talking about the the concrete piece of it first, that is uh, in the language of the Constitution, where Article 3 allows the court what's called both original jurisdiction and appellate jurisdiction. So for people who may not be familiar, when you say that you're a court of original jurisdiction, it just really is a lot of words and syllables to say that this court is the first court to hear the case. So the Constitution allows the Supreme Court to have original jurisdiction in a handful of instances. So so if there's a border dispute between like Kansas and Missouri, 
uh, the court might hear that kind of a case. If there's a dispute that rises among or between ambassadors, then the court can hear that kind of case. But that's uh, that's dictated by the language of the Constitution, and you really can't expand that. So those are, those are the only cases in which the court's the first case, the first court to hear the case. That's called original jurisdiction. So the overwhelming majority of the court's cases are uh, delivered by what's called appellate jurisdiction. And in that instance, what the court is doing is it's reviewing decisions primarily of federal courts of appeal. So these usually have to do with constitutional questions, uh, questions interpreting federal statutes, et cetera. And oftentimes what the court will consider is whether there is a split about this particular legal issue at the lower circuit courts of appeal. So if the fourth circuit said that it should be X, but the eighth and ninth circuit said it should be Y, then sometimes the court will step in and try to resolve that distinction. Now they can also review decisions from the highest court in every state, uh, provided that court is, is deciding a constitutional issue. So, so those are the, the, you know, and it's really that appellate jurisdiction uh, context where the court does most of its work. Uh, as you referenced, there's tons and tons of requests every year for the court to take cases, uh, usually somewhere anywhere between six and 7,000. They only take about 150 per year. And, and usually they only hear oral arguments in about 70 or 80 cases a year. Uh, so if you remember I said internally, there's also some rules and, and one of the court's internal uh, rules is that you must have four of your sitting members vote to accept the case. Anything less than four, you don't get that. Now the one exception, uh, the math changes when it's a death penalty case. If the court has been asked to give a stay of an execution, then I think you have to have five justices instead of four vote to accept. But but those are those are basically the guidelines that, that everybody works under and trying to get the court's attention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and thank you for that. That was very um, very helpful. And you know, when we think about how many cases are coming out of the federal circuits and coming out of the states, and that as you noted, you know, the court is going to take generally certainly no more than 150, and as far as the arguments, um, far less than that. Um, it it makes one kind of wonder about the the caseload of our U.S. Supreme Court. Um, the other thing that I think you mentioned, which we should emphasize, is the court will take cases where there's a constitutional issue, constitutional law issue, where there's an issue involving like federal um, an interpretation of a federal statute or regulation. Uh, but a lot of cases that are heard at the state level could never even make their way to the Supreme Court. Can you talk about just quickly what types of cases might a state court hear where the court of last resort is just going to be like the state court, the state Supreme Court? Sure. So, so in in when people when people join class, sometimes they they hear the term constitution. They think there's only one, right? We have a federal constitution that starts, you know, we the people and all the other stuff that goes along with it. But then every state has its own individual constitution. And sometimes uh, those states will have, while a lot of the language tracks the federal constitution, sometimes it doesn't. And state Supreme Courts are, or whatever the highest court in the land is in that particular state, for instance, in New York, I think it's actually called the Court of Appeals. But those courts actually will deal with the issues that are germane to the interpretation of that particular state's laws. And the Supreme Court has no role in that. So as a, as a really quick example, what I hope will work, 
like the federal Supreme Court has never identified uh, the right to, edu to an education as a fundamental right, okay? But North Carolina has. So if you have a state Supreme Court decision about the fundamental right to an education, well, that's gonna stop at the highest court level here, which is the state Supreme Court. So the US Supreme Court would never ever get involved in a case like that. So that's kind of how it works. It's really an example of both our national system of government and our state system of government working together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. And that was a great example. And you know, it's it's something that I know Irv talks about a lot is we, we can't forget our state constitutions because uh, particularly when you have a court like our US Supreme Court, which is narrowing the rights that individuals have, there are other tools hopefully in your toolbox that you can use to try and um, make sure that individual rights and liberties are, are recognized. And, and Dee Dawson, I, if I could add one more thing, because I think I'd be remiss if I didn't say it. Uh, one of the things that's happened more recently is what's called the shadow docket, mm -hmm. uh, which has kind of come into much more uh, focus over the last few years. And essentially what it is, is it's, it's the use of emergency orders by the Supreme Court. And that happens without oral argument. Like in, in the overwhelming majority of your cases, again, you're, you have sides that are accepted for by the court for a hearing, and then each side will submit briefs, and then there's actually an oral argument before the court before they render a decision. So, uh, but more recently, the court has been approached by parties that say, well, if you don't deal with this right now, we're gonna suffer irreparable harm if you don't immediately grant us the relief that we need. So historically, it wasn't used very frequently, but, but more recently it's been used uh, in much more consequential rulings and at some degree of controversy because the idea is if you're using these emergency orders and what are called summary decisions without oral argument, then now you're short circuiting in some ways the process that people are used to and, and that kind of in some context can create equity and, and fairness problems. Mm -hmm. So that practice has been criticized quite a bit. So we'll have to see going forward whether the court continues to utilize this kind of emergency order system. I'm sorry, I, I wanted to say that while I was on my mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and in fact, one of the cases that we'll be talking about, we'll be able to kind of flesh that out more. And, and yes, you're absolutely right. The court is making decisions about um, rights and, and, and responsibilities without the benefit oftentimes of full briefing and arguments, which, you know, affects individuals. Um, Irv, did you have anything that you wanted to, to add about the court? And uh, you've been involved, of course, in several, several cases uh, that have made their way up to the Supreme Court um, because you are one of the giants that we have here in North Carolina that makes sure that our voting rights are always in the forefront. What are your thoughts about the Supreme Court's uh, docket, how decisions are made, uh, just kind of generally speaking? Yeah, well, I was just going to ask Don uh, if you could kind of explain uh, when you talk about the state Supreme Court and are opinions coming from the state Supreme Court subject to review by the federal uh, Supreme Court or are they any way inferior to or dependent upon what the uh, federal uh, Supreme Court uh, decides? There can be some isolated context where there's kind of cross-pollination of those issues, but I think that's largely because 
there is so much tracking in many state constitutions with that of the US Constitution, right? So, so I think you will have instances where the court may entertain uh, a case, let's say, having to do with the equal protection rights that might look an awful lot like the state Supreme Court's interpretation of its own constitution. So it, it does happen on occasion, but, but not very frequently. And, and again, I think that has really more to do not so much with the substance, which is what I think you're talking about, but just the sheer volume of cases that are sheer volume of, of uh, parties that request review from the court. So I think they try to stay in their lane about that, at least historically, they try to stay in their lane about that and allow the state Supreme Courts to have the final say on those types of decisions. All right, so we've got a couple of cases we're going to talk about, and let's start first with the 303 Creative LLC um, case. And uh, frequent listeners of the show might recall some years ago, we have spoken about many times, the Masterpiece Cake Shop uh, case. And this uh, 303 Creative case is very similar. Don, can you go ahead and start us off and, and let us know what this case is about? Sure. So uh, the petitioner, uh, the person that, that brought the claim, owns a graphic design firm out in Colorado. And, and her goal was to basically expand her business base and to include uh, making websites for, for weddings. So, you know, we have stuff like The Knot and other uh, more familiar commercial sites where people can promote their marriage and you can, or their pending marriage, and you can see the guest list and all kinds of other stuff on the sites. Well, she decided that she wanted to do wedding websites as a part of her design business. However, she opposes the practice of same-sex marriage for religious reasons. And she doesn't want to design websites for same-sex couples who are getting married. So her idea was to be proactive and, and maybe either, it depends on your viewpoint, right? Either avoid confrontation uh, by posting a message like that on her website that would let folk know about her objections to same-sex marriage, or perhaps by posting on her website, she thought she might attract additional clientele who may feel the same way. I'm not sure what was in her heart, but she wanted to put this, um, uh, this message on the website, letting people know of her religious beliefs. So the Colorado has what's called a state anti-discrimination act, and it uh, precludes any business that holds itself open to the public from discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation, among other things. And when, and under the way I believe that law defines discrimination, it means to refuse to provide services, to refuse to provide goods, or in this case, you can't publish anything that either says uh, or implies that people aren't welcome in that establishment, you know, because of their race or their gender or their sexual orientation. So she uh, filed suit proactively in federal court. And what she did was she asked the court for a ruling that Colorado not be allowed to enforce uh, its anti-discrimination law against her. So she's, she basically was trying to shoot a preemptive shot to challenge the law before she could actually be sanctioned by the law. And she says, you know, this is this is a free speech issue, and and um, and that's what the constitutional provision is. So the uh, she lost at the lower court level, and the U.S. Supreme Court did decide to take her case. And the central issue that the court has to decide is whether the law violates her right to free speech under the First Amendment. Uh, now the Tenth Circuit's, which is the court, the lower court before it, said that 
well, yes, it's this is a speech issue, but they decided that the law was constitutional uh, because the standard in these circumstances is what's called strict scrutiny. So if your policy or law survives strict scrutiny, then it means it's constitutional. And what the court said is, yes, this does regulate speech, but because it is serving a compelling government interest, that being ensuring that gay and lesbian couples have the same access to services as everybody else, the 10th Circuit found the law to be constitutional. So uh, you, you made mention of the masterpiece cake shop case a few years ago, also emanating from California. And the court never got to really the key question, which is whether the First Amendment protection of religious freedom allows you to deny services to people. And in this case, it would have been a same-sex couple. So I'm not sure whether the court will actually get to that question in this case, but uh, but if it does, it's gonna be interesting to see how it cross-pollinates kind of the rights of gays and lesbians with the religious beliefs of other people. But in these cases where the business person is holding themselves out to the public, mm -hmm. uh, is not that a, uh, not only a violation of the uh, state statute, but also a violation of the Equal Protection Clause? The answer I think to that question is yes. Uh, the, the challenge though is if you are, let's say that you are the couple and you somehow have been denied access to this website based on her principles. The, the first challenge would be uh, because she is a private uh, entity, she's not a state government actor, uh, I think you'd have to get around what's called the state action doctrine, which means typically that you can't sue a private individual for an alleged constitutional right. So I think the argument would be that yeah, you violated our rights by treating us differently than you treat heterosexual couples. But then her pushback would be, well, that may be true, but I'm a private entity and I'm not answerable to the constitution in the same way that the state of Colorado or the state of North Carolina would be. So, so I think that's part of the reason that's, that that challenge would be tough for the people who would attempt to sue her under that circumstance. Mm -hmm. All right, that's uh, Don Corbett, Professor Don Corbett uh, from the North Carolina Central University School of Law, we're talking about uh, pending constitutional cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. The new term begins uh, first Monday in uh, October. And we were looking at some of the uh, controversial cases that the case uh, court is going to decide. We're going to take our break right now. I want you to uh, stay with us as we uh, continue this discussion. So we'll be right back. North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCCU Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center. 
made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to one, facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and two, increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us as we continue this uh, discussion about the upcoming cases before the U.S. Supreme Court and what it is that we can uh, expect. Uh, And we're talking with Professor Don Corbett, who is a constitutional law expert from the uh, North Carolina Central University School of Law. And uh, we were speaking specifically about the uh, 303 Creative LLC versus Elena's uh, case that uh, the court has on its uh, docket. I mentioned, I uh, asked about the uh, Equal Protection Clause, uh, and uh, Professor Corbett uh, uh, made clear that the Constitution does not, is not implicated uh, in this uh, case, but uh, there is clearly the uh, 1964 Civil Rights Act. Uh, that uh, is uh, drawn here. And then there's this conflict with uh, religious liberty. Can you talk about, uh, I guess, kind of project from what you've seen thus far, the impact that uh, the religious belief might have on the uh, court's uh, determination of how to resolve this case? It it could be immense. Uh, the, The Roberts Court, I read something the other day that said that anywhere between 80 and 85% of the parties that came before the Roberts court citing a religious freedom that had been infringed upon or a religious right that had been infringed upon had prevailed before the Roberts court. So uh, judges very frequently like to say that, well, we're just, we don't, we don't have any personal investment in these cases. We just were like umpires at the baseball game. We call balls and strikes. But it is very clear when it comes to religious liberty that their strike zone is very, very wide. You pretty much throw that ball anywhere and it's going to be a strike. And I think in this particular case, uh, they are going to, I don't know how it's going to turn out, Professor Joyner, you asked me that particular question. The question as it has been presented to the court at this stage is somewhat narrow and speaks more to freedom of speech issues as opposed to religion, which is a little bit different analytical framework. But at the same time, if you remember the Dobbs case that, uh, that, that the court came under such scrutiny for, it also was supposed to be decided on fairly narrow grounds. And the court went much broader and ended up overturning Dobbs because uh, you had justices that had been wanting to do that for a while. So if the justices are clear Um, about their intention of, again, creating more latitude for uh, religious folk to be able to move in our society without government uh, interference, then I think you could very well see an opinion that leans that way 
which would probably be good news for the petitioner in this particular case. Because ultimately it is a religious objection. She may couch it as a speech objection, but ultimately her, 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 her challenges with same-sex marriage are not grounded in speech, they're grounded in religion. And, and I think if the court sees that and wants to rock with that particular viewpoint, then that's what exactly what they'll do. Yeah, and this kind of gets to strategy and we're seeing um, folks who want to take advantage of the conservative majority of the court bringing cases to allow the court to overrule you know, prior precedent. And so as you noted, um, Professor Corbett in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, the court did not answer the First Amendment question and decided it on you know, religious animus. And this particular case, they, it's a straight First Amendment case that of course gives rise because of a religious belief, but they have completely removed, uh, the plaintiff in this case has completely removed the religious um, free exercise component of their constitutional argument. So it will be interesting to see how the court um, decides this case. All right, let's see. So we've got a case coming out of Alabama, actually a, a voting case, uh, Merrill v. Milligan. And Irv, why don't you go ahead and get us started on that case? What is, what is that case about? Why is it so important? Yeah, Merrill versus uh, Milligan is, uh, is really a, an attack on the uh, 1965 Voting Rights Act and uh, Section 2 of uh, the uh, Voting Rights Act, which deals with racial discrimination uh, in the uh, creation of uh, uh, congressional uh, districts. Uh, in uh, uh, Alabama, uh, you had uh, redistricting that uh, occurred. And while there wasn't a change in the number of uh, congressional seats available in, uh, in Alabama. The uh, issue arose with an increasing uh, population of African-Americans uh, in, in the state. And uh, the uh, legislature or, or the, the court uh, looked at, or the state court or the federal court looked at the uh, redistricting plan and determined that the redistricting was uh, racially gerrymandered. And uh, as a result of that, uh, directed that the uh, legislature uh, redraw the uh, line such that uh, African-Americans have an opportunity to uh, elect two uh, representatives of their choice rather than one. Uh, African-Americans represent approximately uh, 25, 20, 8% of the uh, population in, uh, in Alabama, and there are seven seats. And uh, so the uh, plaintiffs were seeking uh, two seats uh, be drawn or to give an opportunity. And the Voting Rights Act uh, would, uh, would, could be read to require that where there were sufficient uh, numbers of African-Americans in a particular district, to create a district uh, in which they would uh, uh, be the majority, that the legislature had to draw uh, those uh, those lines. Uh, the uh, the new configuration uh, provided for these two. Uh, this uh, was appealed by the uh, state uh, legislature to the uh, Supreme Court, 
And even though the uh, federal court found that uh, there was obvious racial uh, gerrymandering going on, the U.S. Supreme Court, without even a hearing uh, in the case, then vacated or put a stay on the uh, judgment of the, uh, of the local court and uh, imposed that only one African-American district uh, would be available uh, for election uh, that uh, term. So even though there was sufficient time uh, for, the, uh, uh, for the population to become accustomed uh, to the, uh, the, the two uh, district uh, requirement, uh, the uh, Supreme Court held on this uh, shadow docket uh, that they would uh, enjoin the uh, enforcement of the uh, lower court decision. That case is now on the uh, uh, Supreme Court uh, docket. The attack now, though, is on the validity of the uh, 1965 Voting Rights Act. Uh, already, uh, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act has been uh, struck down uh, by the court. And uh, now this attack is directed towards striking down Section 2, which would obviously gut uh, any authority of the uh, 1965 uh, Voting Rights Act. And uh, so that case is on the uh, docket uh, for hearing on uh, October 4th, first week of uh, the uh, session. And uh, we're looking to see how the court is going to respond uh, to that with six conservative justices who have already indicated uh, some uh, disenchantment uh, with the uh, reach of the uh, 1965 Voting Rights Act. So we're, we're looking to see how the court is going to uh, deal with that. That would be a big blow uh, to uh, the democracy as it relates to the ability of racial minorities to look for parity in the uh, electoral process for a congressional representative. Yeah, thank you, Irv. Yeah, such a, a crucial case. Can you talk a little bit about how the um, striking down in essence of section five has impacted voting legislation and voting cases and, and why we are now having to rely so heavily on section two? Section five of the uh, Voting Rights Act was designed as a uh, to obtain preclearance of proposed districts by the uh, Justice Department or a three-judge panel from the uh, District of uh, Columbia uh, Court, uh, federal court. And in this uh, instance, it took away a big weapon that racial minorities had been able to use successfully over the years to challenge. Uh, the enactment of, uh, uh, of, of laws, uh, voting-related laws that obviously impacted or were intended to impact uh, the ability of racial minorities to fully participate in the uh, franchise. So instead of uh, now being able to go to the court to stop uh, these uh, uh, enactments based on the projection of what will happen now you have to go to court under Section 2 after the uh, enactment has occurred to show what exactly did result from uh, those uh, enactments. So Section 2 is a post-challenge. Uh, Section 5 was a, a pre-challenge uh, to the uh, constitutionality 
of these uh, enactments. Mm -hmm. And then of course, what it does, which we see in this case, even though you have uh, federal judges who reach the conclusion that you have the districts being um, racially gerrymandered, because the Supreme Court issued a stay, these districts that federal judges have determined violate the constitution are, are going to be used to select the representatives in November. And, and that just emphasizes why section two, this kind of post challenge is not nearly as effective as, as section five, which we, which we now no longer have. So even if the Supreme Court, and, and we're not sure the Supreme Court will actually reach this conclusion, but even if the Supreme Court were to reach a conclusion that these districts, the redistricting violates the constitution, they're still being used to um, elect the representatives for Alabama. Yeah, and, and this is one of the uh, inequalities of this uh, process, uh, that you can have uh, the impact of illegally enacted laws still uh, controlling until such time as uh, uh, some remedy is put uh, in place and the uh, actions taken by the uh, legislature doing that time is uh, is valid, even though they are illegally constituted. A case that uh, has been uh, is now in the uh, forefront of other challenges here in uh, in North Carolina. Yes, and we'll we'll get to that North Carolina case uh, before we do. Professor Corbett, did you have any thoughts on this case out of Alabama? Yeah, it's awful. <laughs> it is. It's it's um. You know, it's the it's often for multiple reasons. It's obviously there are the legal issues that Professor Joyner spoke to, uh, but uh, there was a case last year out of Arizona called the uh, Bernovich versus the Democratic National Committee, where the Supreme Court uh, heard some Section Two challenges based on uh, laws that uh, that had disparate impacts on people of color. Uh, in attempting to cast their ballots to vote in an Arizona state election. And uh, Justice Alito wrote the majority opinion there and basically provided a roadmap for any state to basically write their laws in such a way as to where they would be immune to Section 2 challenges. So uh, the court has been a hostile, this particular iteration of the court has been hostile to voting rights. And, you know, the thing that's so frustrating about it is Congress could, if it wanted to, uh, do as it has done countless other times and, and reinstitute re a different version of the Voting Rights Act that would ensure access in the ways that the original 65 Act intended. But because you have so much, uh, I was trying to think of a kind, where, a kind word to use, you have so much inaction in, in Congress generally, and specifically in action with regard to this particular issue, uh, you're stuck with the holdings of the Supreme Court, which are clearly limiting and, uh, and, and support the disenfranchisement of people at, at large levels. All right, well, that's a great segue into another very important voting case that, that hails from our state, North Carolina, uh, or if you are intimately familiar with and involved with Moore v. Harper. So why don't you take us through what's going on in this case? 
Well, you know, North Carolina is in the middle of all of this stuff, uh, one way or another. Uh, Moore versus Harper, unlike uh, Merrill versus Milligan, uh, which dealt with uh, racial gerrymandering, uh, Moore versus Harper deals with partisan uh, gerrymandering. And uh, the uh, North Carolina <coughs> Supreme Court <clears throat> determined that uh, in North Carolina, in the uh, <coughs> 2020 uh, redistricting process that there was <clears throat> partisan gerrymandering that had uh, occurred. And even though the uh, Superior Court in uh, North Carolina had not found uh, that there was a violation, the uh, North Carolina Supreme Court sent it back uh, with the uh, notion that where there is partisan gerrymandering, that the court has a right and a duty uh, to uh, correct. Uh, that uh, issue. Uh, the, uh, the North Carolina Sup Superior Court then looked at this issue again, uh, determined that uh, new lines had to be drawn uh, in North Carolina. The legislature created new lines which were as bad as were the initial lines that uh, they had drawn. And it then resulted in the Superior Court having a, uh, a team of special masters to look at that, uh, th those lines and to redraw the lines themselves. And uh, that created a more equitable uh, uh, framing of the new congressional uh, lines in North Carolina, where there was an addition of one congressional district, which went from 13 to, uh, to 14 uh, for the uh, upcoming uh, session. And uh, then the uh, legislature then uh, sought to uh, challenge the action of the, uh, uh, the, the court in North Carolina, the Superior Court, uh, in federal court under a uh, provision of the federal constitution, which gives to the legislature the authority to draw time, place, and manner restriction as it relates to the uh, uh, addition of, uh, of, of congressional uh, races. And I know that uh, we have to take a break uh, right now. So why don't we take that break and then let me uh, come back and uh, finish explaining that. So we'll be right back. So hang with us. Uh, we'll uh, continue this discussion. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I'm currently a 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any law degree program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening.
Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking this hour with our distinguished colleague, Professor Don Corbett, who is a constitutional law expert. And we've been talking about this upcoming Supreme Court term, which begins with oral arguments on Monday, October the 3rd. And right before the break, we were talking about an incredibly important voting case out of North Carolina, Moore v. Harper. And Irv, you were giving us the kind of breakdown of factually what's been going on in this case. And you mentioned that um, after the census, most recent census, North Carolina went from 13 congressional districts to 14 congressional districts. And it was required, or the state legislature was required to redraw the lines, which were struck down based on North Carol- the North Carolina Constitution as being unconstitutionally uh, gerrymandered based on party. Yeah. Notwithstanding the North Carolina court's determination of um, the, the drawing of the districts violating the North Carolina Constitution, we have a federal challenge to uh, basically the North Carolina Supreme Court's decision. And so you mentioned you were starting to get into the discussion of how this challenge has come about, because as Professor Corbett discussed, uh, there are some cases where you have the state Supreme Court or the highest court of the state where the U.S. Supreme Court is not able to address those issues. But here we have a North Carolina Supreme Court making a determination based on the North Carolina Constitution, yet we have the state legislature bringing a constitutional challenge. So let's have you pick up on that point. Right. And, I, and I think it's important to, to, to understand that uh, all state elected officials are governed uh, by North Carolina law and the North Carolina Constitution. The North Carolina law and the North Carolina Constitution does not, however, control the election of uh, federal uh, officials. And that would be members of Congress, members of the uh, U.S. Senate, and the president. Uh, and the Constitution, Article One, Section 4 of the federal Constitution gives to the state legislature the authority to create time, place, and manner as it relates to the election of those officials who are at the congressional level or at the presidential uh, level. And that's what we're dealing with uh, here because we're dealing with the uh, gerrymandering of congressional uh, district. The uh, North Carolina Supreme Court, which is the uh, uh, arbiter of constitutional complaints and issues and conflicts in the state, utilizing that authority given to them by the North Carolina Constitution, determined that what the legislature did violated the North Carolina Constitution. The General Assembly, on the other hand, says that the North Carolina Constitution has nothing to do with their power to uh, enact laws dealing with the election of congressional representatives or the president, any federal uh, official, and that they have the exclusive authority 
to create laws without any oversight by anyone other than the U.S. Supreme Court as to how those elections ought to be uh, managed. And uh, here uh, they are seeking uh, this uh, partisan gerrymandering, which also has racial implications uh, along the way. And now they are saying that the North Carolina Supreme Court has absolutely no authority over what it was that, uh, that they decided to do. They are not arguing that what they did uh, was valid, but that they had sole authority to do it, which is very dangerous because now you're giving to the legislature uh, authority without oversight, that uh, there are no uh, provisions or agencies of law that can review the decisions that they make. And the implications are very dire, uh, very dangerous uh, implications uh, here that now this legislature can impose any rule or regulation dealing with the election of congressional representatives, U.S. senators, or the president of this country and how the voters in uh, North Carolina, uh, what their power uh, is with respect to the elections of those uh, individuals. And more versus Harper is just that challenge. And they called it the uh, independent legislative uh, authority. And uh, so the argument goes that the uh, North Carolina Supreme Court obviously has the authority to review any constitutional conflict as it relates to laws enacted by the uh, North Carolina General Assembly. And the legislature is saying, no, we are on our own. We can do anything that we want to do. And if so, then that runs the uh, risk of the legislature uh, basically voiding out the authority of the people to make decisions about who will be elected as uh, federal officials from the state of North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And so we've got to talk about the Rucho case, right? And the, and the U.S. Supreme Court and its decision with respect to partisan <clears throat> gerrymandering, which in large part explains why it is that the North Carolina legislature is trying to do an end run around the North Carolina Supreme Court because the U.S. Supreme Court has already spoken on whether it has the ability to decide partisan gerrymandering um, issues. And, and Professor Corbett, I wanna uh, ask you to kind of weigh in and give your thoughts about this particular case. Sure, I think you're right. I think that they're tied to Rucho in part because the court took a very hands-off approach to partisan gerrymandering rights. So, ah, we can't do anything about that. And, and I can't say it loudly enough but the theory that Professor Joyner spoke to, this independent state legislature, whatever they call it theory, that was on the fringes of people's belief system with regard to how electoral politics should run for a number of years. So the fact that the court is even willing to entertain the idea that this could be viable is, is very, very scary in and of itself, especially given uh, the Rucho case and some of the other cases that we've talked about with regard to voting, et cetera. So just to give people a, a, a real life example of how this would work if North Carolina, if the legislature is correct and the court finds, yeah, we don't think there's any way that there should be oversight over how state legislatures do things. Let's say it's a 2024 election, Biden and Trump run it back. And uh, through some miracle, 
Joe Biden ends up winning the popular vote in North Carolina. Well, the state legislature could, in theory, adopt its own set of elected or uh, electors, which is what's comprised what comprises the electoral college vote for that state. And they could, instead of honoring the popular vote, which usually is what determines the electoral college vote breakdown, they could ignore the popular vote and send their own set of electors to um, to Congress that would show Trump as the winner instead, and that Trump should be the recipient of North Carolina's electoral college votes. They would have, in theory, the authority to do that if the court decides to roll with the independent state legislature theory in the way that Professor Joyner described it. So, so it's, again, five years ago, all of this was unthinkable. And uh, now it not only becomes very thinkable, but maybe even likely with like a lowercase l. So again, it's a little bit disconcerting that the court has opted to hear this particular theory, um, but it could be that even that is a bridge too far for the court. We just have to wait and see uh, and hope for the best. And the interesting thing, you know, looking at the Arucho case, which was a partisan gerrymandering challenge, the U.S. Supreme Court said that the U.S. Supreme Court is without authority to deal with partisan gerrymandering. But the state Supreme Court does have the authority to oversee partisan and racial gerrymandering claims under the state constitution. So now if the uh, Supreme Court is to backtrack on that, it will require them to overrule a uh, prominent pronouncement that the uh, court has already made just in 2019. But since 2019, there has been a radical change in the composition of the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. And there is a possibility, very strong possibility, that that might happen. And uh, there is a lot of alarm, obviously, uh, across the land about giving state legislatures this authority. Mm -hmm. Yes. And there's so much more we can talk about with this case. And in fact, we, we will dedicate a show to it. Um, I don't believe the Supreme Court has set oral arguments yet for this particular case, but we'll keep a close eye on it. And of course, we are always appreciative of all the, the great work that Irv um, and, and the other voting rights experts that we have in North Carolina are doing to make sure that um, you know we, we put up a, a, a good fight. And um, all right, so let's see, we have uh, one more companion set of cases that we're gonna talk about real quickly. We actually had a show recently where we were able to discuss the student for fair admissions cases against Harvard and UNC. So we won't spend a whole lot of time um, on it now, but it is an incredibly important case that's gonna be heard by the uh, Supreme Court, these two cases, they are scheduled to be heard on October 31st. And these are two cases where there's a challenge to the use of race in admissions processes um, at the higher education level. So we've got Harvard College, which is a private school, and we have UNC here in North Carolina, which is a public school. And these two cases, the challenge is that race should never be used when admissions decisions are being made. And so with the Harvard case, the argument is 
that uh, the race conscious admissions decisions are discriminating against Asian Americans. And the UNC challenge is specifically that UNC's race-based admissions program discriminates against whites and Asians, and that UNC unfairly prioritizes Black and Latino students um, over white and Asian students. So in deciding these cases, the court will have to decide a couple of things. And so first is whether racial diversity in higher education is a compelling interest. And so one of the things that we've talked about on this show before is that um, whenever you're using race, uh, for thinking about the constitutional application, the Equal Protection Clause, the court has said that there has to be a compelling interest. Um, so UNC, it's a constitutional challenge. Even though Harvard is a private school, uh, the challenge is being brought under Title VI. Uh, it's anticipated that the court will apply the same type of equal protection analysis in determining whether Harvard has violated a federal statute which prohibits um, discrimination unless there's a compelling interest, or at least race discrimination, unless there's a compelling interest. And if the court does reach a conclusion, and there's no guarantee that the court will, but if the court reaches a conclusion that having racial diversity in higher education is a compelling interest, then the next thing that the court will have to decide is whether it is appropriate to allow schools to consider race amongst several other factors in making admissions decisions. So can is the only way that you can um, reach racial diversity is to consider race as part of the admissions decisions. Um, so this particular, these cases are seeking to overrule um, two cases that have previously been decided by the, C the Supreme Court. So we've got the Grutter case and we've got the Fisher case. And we've talked already on this show about the, the makeup of the court and how that has shifted. And we're seeing the impact of that on a number of our decisions. So both the Grutter case and the Fisher case were decided 5-4, where the court upheld the use of race in admissions. Um, since that time, we have Kennedy having been replaced by Kavanaugh, and then we also have Ginsburg being replaced by Barrett. And even though we have Brown Jackson, who's on the court, having replaced Breyer, um, we no longer have that 5-4 split. And really what we have um, is closer to a 6-3. So those that study affirmative action, have studied the Supreme Court, most of us are of the view that the court is probably going to strike down the use of race in admissions decisions at uh, higher education levels. And so uh, Professor Corbett and Irv, wanna get your thoughts on, on these companion cases. Uh, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll chime in. I, I think you're, you know, as always, your overview is excellent. It's exactly where we are. And again, sometimes you can you can figure out where the court's head is about something when they take a case that they've already decided, right? This this has been the Fisher case was not that long ago. I believe that the uh, the Gruder case that you spoke to was about 2003. And in the context of the history of the court's decision, those are that's like five minutes in time. So the fact that there were enough judges to take the case suggests very strongly that they they want to revisit that particular holding. 
and eliminate race from any consideration uh, for admission at the higher education level. And I think they wanted, and I think they took the Harvard case because they want to make the same holding with regard to private institutions that collect or accept federal money. So I, I wish it was different, but it's, I think it's just kind of what it is. And the other thing I think that's worth mentioning is I am fairly certain that Katanji Brown Jackson has recused herself from this case because she uh, had ties to Harvard. Uh, she obviously graduated from Harvard, but I think she had ties in, uh, on, on, I can't remember the group, Professor Dawson, but I know that I'm pretty sure she has recused herself from the case to eliminate any appearance of a conflict of interest, which we could talk about in other contexts, but we won't now. But uh, I think given the makeup of the court, in order for the Grutter holding to stay in place, you already have Alito and Kavanaugh, I'm sorry, Alito and uh, Thomas and Roberts who have loudly uh, been against the use of race in these contexts for years. And now you've added Gorsuch, Coney Barrett, and uh, Kavanaugh to even to even split at four four. You need two of those three people to side with Sotomayor and Kagan. I just don't really see that happening. So the question becomes: you know, this should be on the radar of higher ed institutions already. And the question becomes: how will you be able to implement meaningful racial diversity on campus if you can't use race? in the consideration of creating your climate or creating your campus uh, student body. So I hope that people are thinking about that. I hope they're much smarter than me and they come up with creative ways to avoid what surely will be a, uh, an adverse decision by the court in this context. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Professor Corbett, you're absolutely right. The Harvard case, um, Brown Jackson has recused. She will be able to participate on the UNC case. And in fact, the court had initially planned on hearing both of those cases together and split them so that she'd be able to at least participate um, with the, the UNC case. And um, yeah, it, it will be interesting to see what the court does. I, I hope I'm surprised. Um, Irv, in the last few minutes, did you have any thoughts you wanted to share about this particular case? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that I'm, I'm surprised uh, as well, but this can be a devastating blow to uh, racial minorities' ability to uh, gain admission uh, to uh, colleges and, and university and has uh, implications beyond uh, that issue. All right, well, we are going to have to leave it there, but uh, we talk often about cases that are being decided by the Supreme Court. So we'll have shows dedicated to each of these incredibly important cases. So we hope that you'll continue to stay tuned. We'd of course like to thank Professor Don Corbett, constitutional law expert, our colleague here at NCCU School of Law, for his willingness always to engage with us and to share his expertise. Thank you, Professor Corbett. Thank you for having me, I appreciate it. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. If you have any questions, please feel free to send us an email. You can reach us at legaleagoreview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.